From Washington, this is VOA News. South Africa's Nelson Mandela released from the hospital and President Obama planning Mideast diplomacy in the next month or so. I'm Marty Johnson reporting from Washington. Former South African President Nelson Mandela was discharged from the hospital today. The country's presidential office said following a sustained and gradual improvement in his general condition. The former president and Nobel Prize winner Mandela will now receive home-based high care. 94-year-old Mandela was admitted to the hospital on March 27th for treatment for a recurring lung infection and pneumonia. Iraqi officials say an attack on an election campaign meeting in the city of Bakuba has killed 20 people at least. Police say a militant threw a hand grenade into the meeting before a suicide bomber blew himself up. More than 50 additional people were wounded. The meeting was for supporters of a candidate preparing to run in provincial elections later this month. Secretary of State John Kerry heads to the Middle East today to push for progress on Syria and the Israeli conflict. Kerry will meet with Turkish officials, including Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan, to discuss efforts to end Syria's civil war. The State Department says he will also push for... Uh, confidence-building measures between Israel and the Palestinians, and for Turkey to try to repair the relationship damaged when Israel blockaded a Turkish flotilla from delivering aid to the Gaza Strip in 2010. Eight Turks and one Turkish-American died in that incident. President Barack Obama also plans Middle East diplomacy of his own this month and next, welcoming leaders from Turkey, Jordan, and two Gulf states to the Oval Office for talks on broad developments in the Mideast as well as Syria. VOA's Dan Robinson reports. Asked if the visits are part of efforts to coordinate assistance to Syrian opposition forces, White House Press Secretary Jake Carney avoided an answer, keeping to the general description provided of the purpose of the visits. There are obviously a number of issues uh, for these leaders uh, and the president to discuss. So uh, he looks forward to these visits and and they reflect uh, his uh, commitment and interest in the region and, and in our policies towards the region. Syria issued a warning to Jordan this week after U.S. and Western officials were quoted as saying Jordan is allowing its territory to be used for training Syrian rebels. Dan Robinson, VOA News, the White House. A second and final day of talks is underway in Kazakhstan as delegates from the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council plus Germany and Iran continue efforts to reach consensus on Tehran's controversial nuclear programs. The delegates are discussing proposals to allow Iran to trade some products now under international sanctions if it agrees to close a nuclear facility and also get rid of its stockpile of enriched uranium. North Korea is urging foreign embassies to consider evacuating from Pyongyang due to rising tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Russia and Britain confirmed they received the request Friday from the North for their staff embassy staff to vacate, but they have no plans to withdraw. Britain said North Korea warned embassies and international organizations in the country it cannot guarantee their safety after April 10th in the event of a conflict. The unhealthy habits that come along with economic development, including smoking, drinking, and eating unhealthy fast food, are taking their toll on the health of Kenyans, who are increasingly suffering rates of high blood pressure. Anyways, Gabe Joslow reports health workers are concerned that if unchecked, the affliction could become a serious problem in the country. At a supermarket in downtown Nairobi, what many customers don't know is that bags of potato chips, snack foods, processed meats and cheeses are silent killers, high in salt and fat that could lead to an early death from stroke or heart disease. They're not aware that they could be sick. This is Millicent Manure, 
founder of Medical Missions Kenya, a nonprofit that provides free health screenings across the country. That they could have a time bomb, you know, that there's something they can do about it. They don't even know that. The World Health Organization says cases of hypertension are most prevalent in low-income countries in Africa, where more than 40% of the adult population can be affected. In Kenya, Manyor has noted that the cases are not uniform across the nation. In more urbanized areas, like Central Province, just outside Nairobi, up to 75% of those screened have high blood pressure. While in the remote Samburu region, less than 10% suffers from hypertension. Gabe Jossolo, VOA News, Nairobi. The search has ended for victims of a building collapse in Mumbai, India, where officials say at least 72 people died, including a number of children. Authorities said today that after an overnight search, there was no chance any more survivors would be found among the ruins. Officials say 36 people are hospitalized with injuries. I'm Marty Johnson, VOA News, Washington. More news at voanews.com. Welcome to the American Cafe. I'm Ira Melman. Coming your way, the American love affair with a hamburger could be reaching a turning point. Young people today are just not so meat and potatoes oriented as earlier generations were. We'll go to the meat of that issue. We pay a visit to an American oil boomtown. We had wells drilled in churchyards, uh, in people's backyards, on the school ground. And we explore a circus through a unique prism. The circus is gorgeous. circus is beautiful in its own right. But then to look at it through the eyes of a scientist, it adds more depth. All of that and more on this week's American Cafe. Although it was not invented in the United States, the hamburger has become a symbol of American cuisine. In fact, United Nations figures say Americans eat more meat than anyone else in the world. However, America's love affair with a hamburger may be cooling a bit, just as the rest of the world's appetite for animal products is growing. VOA's Steve Barragona has more. Anything else for you today? It'll be 8.75. Lunchtime at the Juice Joint Cafe in downtown Washington, where the menu is heavy on fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Joe Yonin is a fan of their soups. That of the veggie burgers. Yonin is a certified judge of barbecued meat. He grew up in the cattle ranching town of San Angelo, Texas. But sampling some Texas brisket a couple years ago, Yonin noticed something strange. It tasted really great, but I didn't find it kind of satisfying on a primal level the way that I used to. And that was surprising to me, and I thought, wow, something definitely is changing. Yonin used to eat a lot of meat for work. He's the award-winning food editor of the Washington Post, one of the nation's largest and most influential daily newspapers. Now he's a vegetarian. In a recent column, he assured readers that his decision won't affect his editorial judgment. I think that meat can be beautiful. I think that it can be delicious. I just don't want to eat it. While his decision might be frowned upon in his Texas hometown, he says he received mostly positive responses here in Washington. Vegetarians are no longer an oddity in the U.S., at least in major urban areas. But Yonin says he sees a broader cultural shift going on. I got a lot of emails from people saying, you know, I'm not vegetarian, but I'm trying to do more of that at home. Many Americans are trying more vegetarian fare today. U.S. government figures show a 6% drop in per-person meat consumption from 2006 to 2010, the first major decline in decades. It's at least partly economic. Rising prices and a bad U.S. economy have made meat less affordable. 
But it's also generational, says environmental researcher Lester Brown at the Earth Policy Institute. Young people today are just not so meat and potatoes oriented as earlier generations were. Health concerns are one reason. Brown says many studies link heavy consumption of red meat to higher risks of heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. We're beginning to realize that too much red meat is, is not good. Restaurants are responding with meatless options. Vegetarian entrees are a top 10 hot trend this year, according to the National Restaurant Association. A little bit of radish. Here at Naj Bistro in Washington, Chef Christopher Roberson is preparing a sandwich with fresh greens and the protein-rich Andean grain quinoa. You serve it open-faced because um, you want people to see what they're eating because it's usually a lot of vegetables and you want to see that beautiful, vibrant, fresh vegetable. Naj is part of a nationwide Meatless Monday campaign that encourages people to eat vegetarian meals at least once a week. Roberson says promoting healthier eating means breaking some stereotypes. People say, don't trust a skinny chef, you know, I was like, you know, I'm like, don't trust a big one, he's gonna do that to you, you know? But while meatless meals are catching on in the U.S., the demand for meat in emerging economies has grown along with rising prosperity, says Lester Brown. In other parts of the developing world, meat consumption is rising very fast. Uh, Brazil would be a case in, in point. And in China, we've seen uh, enormous growth in, in meat consumption you know, over the last couple of decades. And feeding all that livestock takes a huge amount of grain and water. Brown says that poses serious risks to the environment. If the entire world were to move up to the U.S. level of grain consumption, we'd certainly need two planets the size of this one and, and maybe by now three. So while the hamburger still rules the grill, the veggie burger may reserve a seat at tomorrow's table. Steve Barragona, VOA News, Washington. The United States is in the midst of yet another energy production boom and could be producing more oil than global leader Saudi Arabia by 2020. Rising natural gas production is expected to drive down manufacturing costs, giving American products a clear advantage on world markets. But all that new energy comes at a price, as reporter Mike Osborne learned when he visited one of this country's oldest oil boom towns. The hum and squeal of oil pumps is impossible to escape in the small East Texas town of Kilgore. The pumps are everywhere, still lifting Texas crude out of the ground more than 80 years after oil was discovered here. Kilgore's been through several cycles of energy boom and bust in the years since. The lessons learned are preserved in the city's East Texas Oil Museum, where Joe White is the director. We were less than uh, 400 population according to the census of 1930, and literally overnight after the Cremwell came in uh, 28 December uh, 1930 at 22,000 barrels a day, and the population swelled over 10,000, and uh, things were never the same again. In fact, things quickly got out of hand in Kilgore. The Texas Rangers were called in to restore order and pressed a local church building into service as a temporary jail. Many of the newcomers ended up living in the town park that winter. Their makeshift shelters of cardboard and pine branches provided little protection from the weather, and disease spread quickly in the crowded camps. All kinds of uh, respiratory ailments, and it was not unusual to walk through. I'm told uh, by the old doctors that it wasn't unusual to find someone dead down there almost every morning. The epicenter of Kilgore's oil boom was a quarter hectare of land right in the heart of town, 
Bill Woodall, editor of the Kilgore News Herald, says that so much oil was pumped from this one city block, it came to be known as the world's richest acre. There were well over a thousand derricks inside the city limits of Kilgore. Literally, the skyline was dominated uh, by derricks. The backs of buildings, they just knocked them off. And that's what happened here. They knocked off the backs of the buildings and set up derricks and drilled wells. All that oil money meant bigger churches, nicer homes, a small college, a library, and a theater seating 900 in a town of 10,000. But there were also challenges. To this day, oil pumps, tanks, and pipelines take up so much land that Kilgore has a housing shortage, and the roller coaster economy makes it hard to build more. R.E. Spradlin is Kilgore's mayor. The last four or five um, builders have come in and put in a housing addition. Four out of five went bankrupt. One did, one did it twice. Money dries up so quickly in a down cycle, builders get caught holding unsold properties. Spradlin says those highs and lows make it hard for everyone to plan ahead, including city leaders. You know, the city's income goes up and down. In the crash of the mid-80s, we had to uh, cut people's pay. We had layoffs. Spradlin was born and raised in Kilgore and says that in spite of the challenges of boomtown life, residents are fiercely proud of their roughneck heritage. My junior high school song was, Neath the towering steel of Derrick stands our junior high. So, you know, it permeated every single facet of living in Kilgore. Kilgore now shares the lessons it learned the hard way with other small towns. All the laws about how close together you drill wells, etc., that are used worldwide now came from the mistakes we made in Kilgore by drilling a well every 25 feet. We had wells drilled in churchyards, uh, in people's backyards, on the school ground. Spradlin says he tells America's latest batch of energy boom towns to keep their recurring expenses low, save as much as they can, and remember that the rush of money can end as quickly as it began. For VOA News, I'm Mike Osborne in Kilgore, Texas. If you gave a school child a choice between going to the circus and studying science, chances are that that student would choose the circus. Our next stop is in Boulder, Colorado, where a group of scientists and educators have found a way to let their students do both at the same time. The teachers and scientists are circus performers, showing children that science can be fun. From Boulder, Shelley Schlender has more. We can read this. The good dog. In her day job, Cassie Drew teaches children how to read. But at night, she's a circus acrobat who practices at a Boulder gymnastics gym. We're not in a rush, guys, so no. like it is fast-paced and chaotic. By day, Joe Ramos is an aerospace engineer. I do mostly magnetic design and integration and test characterization of satellites. At night, he's a strong man at the circus gym. I hold people on top of me, either in a handstand or sometimes they stand on my shoulders, sometimes there's multiple people standing on me. When several people are standing on him, Rama says his knowledge of physics helps him balance. Acrobat and physicist Ian Caldwell says that's just one example of how science adds wonder to circus acts. So circus is gorgeous, circus is beautiful in its own right. But then to look at it through the eyes of a scientist, it adds more depth. Right after he graduated from high school, Caldwell traveled the world as a circus juggler and acrobat. Over time, though, he found that wasn't enough for him. I missed all the mental activity and mental gymnastics, if you will. He returned to Boulder, 
where studying physics provided those mental gymnastics and practicing acrobatics at the local gym kept him in shape he joined a community of circus fans who spent their days in scientific pursuits and performed circus acts for local community groups the group found a special purpose when cassie drew suggested they put on a show to raise money for her school and ian caldwell thought science could be the theme i love the circus arts i love education i love science I'm like yeah i'm in of course hundred percent they named their project the vicindi circus vicindi is the icelandic word for science they believed its exotic sound hence had the magic of both science and the circus joe ramas designed an act that demonstrates the concept of angular momentum in other words why it's hard to balance on a bicycle that's standing still while it's easy to ride a moving one for the vicindi circus ramas uses just a bicycle wheel we spin it very quickly we hang it on a big metal circle ring called lira which is a circus apparatus and the way in which it hangs is pretty magical because it doesn't swing or move the way anyone would expect the performers also developed acts that showed the power of a puff of air by shooting smoke rings out of a garbage can and how you can swing a bucket of water over your head without spilling a drop because of centrifugal force finally the cindy circus day for cassie drew school arrived You are in for a treat. Every one of these acts is packed full of incredible examples of what I love most in life, science. The curtains on the auditorium stage swept open and out danced clowns and acrobats in colorful costumes. They juggled. They pranced on circus stilts. The sparkling spinning bicycle wheel made the kids gasp. And when the acrobats explained how gravity helps them stand on the strongman's shoulders or do backflips, some children leaned way forward in their chairs as if to remind themselves of gravity's mysterious pull. Afterwards, many of the children vowed to join the circus someday. Others had a different dream. I am a scientist. I know about gravitational forces and gases and liquids. Third grader Caleb says he liked watching a circus that celebrates science. It's adding fun to science. Members of the Vicindi Circus are creating lesson plans so that other schools can do as they've done, blending circus and science into a joyful and educational mix. For VOA News, I'm Shelley Schlender in Boulder, Colorado. We move from the mountains of Colorado to the concrete canyons of New York City, where one of Broadway's most anticipated plays opened on April 1st. Lucky Guy stars Tom Hanks. It's his Broadway debut and the last play written by his collaborator and friend, the late Nora Ephron. Ephron is best known for movies she wrote and directed, like When Harry Met Sally and You've Got Mail. She died in January from cancer after writing Lucky Guy. Jeff London reports. When Nora Ephron handed Tom Hanks an early draft of her play about tabloid journalist Mike McAlary several years ago, he had a pretty strong reaction. I said, well, that guy's sure a jerk. And she laughed and she said, well, he kind of was, but he, he was kind of great, too. What appealed to Ephron about the sometimes ethically challenged, hard-drinking McAlary was that he came from a world 
dear to her heart. She moved to New York as a young woman and landed a job at the New York Post. Tom Hanks says in some sense she never stopped being a reporter. I think Nora rode her life as a journalist literally as far as it possibly could. And then when it came time, she took those same journalistic sensibilities and turned to books and the same journalistic sensibilities are in her films. Everything she's ever done, everything I've ever done with her, has really been sort of like about reporting on modern times. The play is set in the newsrooms, streets, and bars of New York during the 1980s and 90s, when the city was facing an epidemic of crack cocaine as well as police corruption. But more than anything else, director George C. Wolfe says... It's a play about the death of newspaper culture and the characters who filled that world and the characters who replaced them and a sensibility that replaced them. I think at the end of the day, a love poem to journalism. For example, what's your story? The story of McElary. I am a newspaper reporter, and I love my job, and I'm doing God's work. I'm serving the public. I'm telling people what happened yesterday. I'm telling them the facts. Audiences who know Nora Ephron from her romantic comedies like Sleepless in Seattle may be surprised to encounter such a testosterone-fueled work, says George Wolfe. I asked her some question and she said, what's more fun than hanging out in the bar with the guys? And the sort of intimate knowledge that she brings about all of that is really fun. It's been fun to play with. Many of the play's characters are based on real-life personalities, some of whom are still alive. Others, like McElary, are not. He passed away from cancer at the age of 41. Hap Hairston, who died of a heart attack in 2002, was one of McElary's editors and best friends. He's played by Courtney B. Vance. Their work was much better because of his deft hand, and it's a bit like a marriage, that editor and writer relationship, as you know, and so he was very, very good at what he did, and when they separated, it was hard on both of them. You like telling people if it wasn't for you, there would be no Mike McAlary. You tell people you write my column. Some days I do. Some days you fix my column, and I am so grateful to you, Mr. Harrison, but news flash, but that is your job. The play follows McElary through his life and career, his rise to become the best-paid columnist in the New York tabloids, his near-fatal car crash caused by his own drunk driving, his reporting missteps and rehabilitation. His last major story about a notorious case of police abuse in 1997 earned him the Pulitzer Prize, but he died of colon cancer just months later. Tom Hanks says working on a play about a man who died of cancer, written by a woman who died of cancer before she could see it staged, feels poignant. Well, selfishly, I did this to hang out with Nora. <laughs> the, the original part of this was, well, how, how bad can that be? Go off and, you know, be on Broadway finally and be, uh, do it with Nora and she'd be there every day and we'd be batting around ideas. One of Efren's sons, Jacob Bernstein, also a journalist, says he's proud of her work on Lucky Guy, but it's bittersweet. I miss my mother, and that supersedes a play that she would have written or a movie that she would have directed, all of that stuff. A very different Nora Efren, now on view on Broadway. For VOA News, I'm Jeff London in New York.
And now it's time for some ear candy, a piece of Americana we try to reveal to you every week. Today we visit singer and guitarist J.J. Gray, who describes his music as swamp funk, a style that conjures up cypress trees and alligators lurking in muddy waters. As VOA's Doug Levine tells us, Gray revisits his deep southern roots on a new album entitled This River. Enjoy. There's a place down on the coast between Florida and Alabama mm -hmm. All the women down there get a little, little too hot to handle J.J. Gray is a natural storyteller. His songs are inspired by people he grew up with and the rural swamplands of his childhood home near Jacksonville, Florida. Even the album is named for a natural feature of the Jacksonville landscape, the St. Johns River. For J.J., songwriting is all about observation, a recollection of the people and places in his life. And this river, his seventh album for Alligator Records, is no exception. This album, is, the songs just kind of come together, and more often than not, they wind up being stories, either about my own craziness or uh, friends of mine or whatnot, or a, sort of a composite, of a mixture of people I know and myself, so to speak. J.J. Gray says if you want to find the true source of swamp music, go south. It varies from more of the New Orleans super swamp style of it all the way over to more of the, like, Jerry Reed, Alabama Wildman more country side of it or Tony Joe White country side of it and that swamp music you know swamp funk swampy blues swamp rock whatever it it sounds like those places it sounds like those swampy places in in, in Florida and Georgia and, and Alabama and, and uh, Mississippi and all those places Louisiana I can't put my finger on exactly what it is I know a clavinet with a little wah-wah pedal on it you play it right and it sounds just like a frog Soft as a voice spoken from heaven Honey for my ear, temper my soul The warmth and the rain, the green and the bottom The echo in the night when a train whistle blow in support of This River, J.J. Gray and his band Mofro begin a three-month tour of the U.S. and Europe in Lake Buena Vista, Florida on April 5th. J.J. says he loves to tour, but nothing compares to the sights and sounds of home. I'm on tour way up north somewhere, and it's beautiful, I love it, but I've been gone from home for a while. When we start to get down there around South Carolina, I start seeing palm trees, pine trees, and oak trees. You know, you're not too far from the ocean. I know we're getting close to home. From this river, J.J. Gray and Mofro perform Tame a Wild One. I'm Doug Levine.
all the time we have for in this week's program. Our thanks to executive producer Bob Doty and editors Faith Lapidus, Jane Friedman, and Rob Sivak. If you'd like to hear more about these stories, check out our website at voanews.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email from wherever you are to our studios in Washington, D.C. You can email us at americancafe at voanews.com. You can also give us a phone call. Dial the international code, then number one for the United States, followed by 202-205-9942. When you hear the VOA ID, press 05 and then leave your questions or your comments. For all the people here at VOA, I'm Ira Melman. We'll see you next time on American Cafe. Washington, the nation's capital. The Voice of America presents Issues in the News. The nation's top Washington correspondents offer their perspectives on the week's major stories. Your moderator is Fred Barnes of the Weekly Standard. Issues in the News begins now. Welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Fred Barnes of the Weekly Standard. Joining me on the show this week are Barbara Slavin, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and Washington Correspondent for AlMonitor.com, and David Rennie, Lexington Columnist for The Economist. And here are the issues. In still another threatening statement, North Korea announced its military has been cleared to launch a nuclear attack on the United States. In Kazakhstan, a new round of talks on Iran's nuclear ambitions has begun. Meanwhile, American Secretary of State John Kerry is returning to the Middle East to prod Israelis and Palestinians to resume peace talks. And President Obama is giving a series of speeches around the country to revive fading hopes of enacting significant gun control legislation this year. Well, David, let me start with you. And this question comes up every week. Uh, How seriously should we take uh, the North Koreans? All the threatening statements, and they really haven't done much militarily in terms of moving uh, parts around, but how seriously should we take them? 
Well, the conventional wisdom around North Korea, which probably has quite a lot to it, is that the actual bellicose language we can discount. I mean, they have been declaring war, you know, every year for as long as they've existed. Well, they, I don't um, think they've ever threatened a, a nuclear attack on they, the United they, States. They, they used to routinely declare that they were about to turn South Korea into a sea of fire. <laughs> okay. And so, uh, you know, this, this level forgot. of rhetoric is, yeah. uh, is, is pretty standard stuff. I mm. mean, they, they, they have survived despite a completely broken economy, with what uh, one diplomat calls belligerent mendicancy. I mean, they're basically the kind of the aggressive beggar who kind of comes after you. The problem that everyone worries about in this case is, of course, we have a new and very untested leader. We don't know how this young Kim Jong-un, the new leader, we don't know how solid his grip is on the military, on the security kind of deep state. And so with a new, a new untested leader of uncertain uh, stability, then there's the risk of miscalculation because these are very dangerous games of brinkmanship and, you know, clearly he's new and untested. That's the new ingredient of, of alarm. So what are the prospects for an accidental war? The U.S. obviously, you know, flew B-2 bombers over the Korean Peninsula and sent some ships over there, but now seems to be, at least the Wall Street Journal says, inclined to sort of ratchet that down a little. Well, I mean, I used to cover North Korea out of Beijing a few years ago. And, you know, when I was there a decade ago, I mean, there were some pretty bad, hot sort of incidents. And, and actually, the system has more elastic in it than you think. So the North Koreans have sunk South Korean naval vessels and killed South Korean sailors in recent times. And there wasn't a war because people are very conscious of the stakes. You've had North Korean midget submarines, you know, coming aground with dead North Korean sailors. I mean, there's a lot of stretch in the system. I mean, this is a very dangerous situation, but actually neither side has a particular interest in triggering an enormous shooting war. And then, of course, you have the extraordinary role that China plays, because China uh, basically seeks stability above all in that region. And the big picture for China is that stability means having a buffer zone of North Korea in place. But within that, of course, China is extremely unhappy about the, the North Koreans' behavior. And China has the spigots. China, without China, North Korea has no sources of fuel and not enough food. And so China is in this very strange position of not having chosen to act to date. But it does have a kind of hand on the spigot. Well, Barbara, what's your take? Uh, pretty much the same as David's. I mean, we used to talk about North Korea having uh, practicing judo diplomacy, asymmetric diplomacy, what you will. It, I mean, it, it takes its weaknesses and it turns them into it, its strengths, the fact mm -hmm. that it is poor and isolated and has a reputation for being a little bit crazy. And it's using it once again. I think there are a couple of reasons, possibly. Kim Jong-un wants to shore up his position as the leader, as the, the third now in the Kim dynasty running this odd place. Uh, also, we have the birthday of the founder of the dynasty, Kim Il-sung, coming up on April the 15th. And some belligerent act perhaps tied to that could be expected. I, You know, he's not going to, obviously, he can't send a a missile to hit the United States, uh, despite the claims of the North Korean media. But could shoot off a missile, have another nuclear test even, although that's probably unlikely, or have some incident with South Korea that causes casualties uh, to mark his uh, emergence on the stage and to also mark this important birthday. What about China? China wants a, uh, a buffer zone, but also wants a stable uh, Korean peninsula. Well, uh, you know, again, for China, I mean, North Korea is sort of the, not to mix metaphors again, it's like the crazy ant in the attic. You know, North Korea makes the Chinese look good by comparison. When uh, my husband and I lived in China back in the 1980s, uh, I always remember our Chinese employees making fun of the North Koreans with their little Kim Il-sung buttons. And we had to laugh because just 10 years earlier, that had, of course, been China during the Cultural Revolution. So the Chinese are worried. Obviously, they don't want a major war to break out. South Korea 
Korea is a very important trading partner uh, for China, far more important than North Korea is. Uh, but I think they can also accept a certain amount of bad behavior. It's, it's part of North Korea's persona, you know, that we've all gotten used to over the years. It's a tragic lack of imagination, really. I mean, there should be a grand bargain available. I mean, North Korea is not a very populous country. I think it's 20-odd million people. You know, the South Koreans are frozen as thing as saying, well, we kind of want reunification, but if the barrier came down, ooh, we're not sure we could afford to cope with, you know, doing an East Germany-style reconstruction. The Chinese say, oh, we'd be very frightened of American troops moving from South Korea up to our border. You know, there's got to be a grand bargain there. You say, we could pay for this. You know, the Americans yeah, wouldn't but, come. But the Kim dynasty yeah. would not survive without no, 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 this isolation. The, the, that's, the, be, that's the problem, no, no. right? North Korea, leave them aside. But there should be a grand bargain for China and America to reach, you know, where the Americans would not put troops on the border with China and, and we would pay for North Korea's reconstruction. But the problem there is that the Chinese, although in some areas like trade they're increasingly rational you can talk to them like a normal country there is this kind of deep security state military sure. state mm -hmm. in china and this is one of those issues that is controlled by the deep state in china and they just will not talk i mean you can talk to american officials who say a couple of years ago the chinese were really sick of north korean bad behavior and they were starting to come around to the american arguments mm -hmm. you know the americans say if you don't like the posture of american forces in places like japan our agreements with taiwan well do something about North Korea. You know, we are in your backyard because of North Korean bad behavior. The rational parts of China hear that. The problem is that then North Korea nearly fell apart in the last days when you had the, the previous leader, Kim Jong-il, uh, had his stroke. You had this botched currency devaluation and the economy nearly collapsed. North Korea looked on the point of collapse. And at that point, the Chinese just flipped and they said, we can't cope with the North Korean collapse that triggers all of our deep, deep state instincts. And they moved away from a kind of rational discussion with the West and went into this kind of crouch, this much more old-fashioned crouch. And it's a very depressing scenario that we see at the moment. You know, Barbara, I recall talking to uh, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice in the George W. Bush administration and hearing from her this repeated frustration with China's uh, refusal to act boldly to curb uh, the North Koreans. Yeah, well, you know, look, the North Koreans have lost a sort of buffer in Burma now. I mean, there is rising nationalism in Japan and more support for the defense forces there than there has been since World War II. You have Southeast Asia up in arms over Chinese incursions, a lot of disputes over islands and so on. And uh, I think I understand why the Chinese would want to hold on to North Korea, but, you know, it's such a difficult country. And, I mean, the propaganda... It's a, we used to joke, actually, when we lived in China that we would enjoy writing North Korean propaganda because it was so over the top. But, you know, uh, there was even a parody, actually, that went around on the Internet. of um, It was supposed to be a propaganda film where the North Koreans were showing how Americans were so desperate that they were surviving on killing birds and eating snow. But it was so well done that a lot of people actually thought it was for real and, and not a spoof. Uh, it is just such a unique place. My feeling is if we can prevent a confrontation over time, you know, the North's monopoly on propaganda on information is eroding. The state will eventually crumble. I don't think there will be another Kim after this Kim, but we have to get through some more bumpy years. Well, we've been waiting a long time for this state to crumble. At the... yeah, having been to North Korea a couple of times, I mean, I can't stress enough, this is not just another Burma or another kind of Uzbekistan with a nasty dictator, but CNN in the televisions and, and, you know, Western cars driving around the streets. North Korea is a parallel 
universe. <laughs> it is the 1950s. It is Albania circa 1955. There are people in North Korea who have no idea that Americans landed on the moon. They mm. think that the motor car was invented by a North Korean. They've never heard of the Beatles. I mean, this is, you know, this <laughs> is... Now this that's is, something. There, yeah. there, this is there, first... No, no, we, they sang us a North Korean folk song <laughs> in North Korea. And it was Imagine. And we said, no, no, that's not a North Korean folk song. That's by a man called John Lennon. Who's John Lennon? <laughs> I think they've been seeing some videotapes of South Korean soap operas, and a little reality has managed to penetrate over the last few years. Although I, last time I was there was in 2000. You know, so it's slow. Okay, but I think it is inevitable. Yeah, let me ask one more question. This being a show coming from uh, Washington in the United States. Uh, David, what do you think the... American role is or should be? In the North Korean conflict. Mm -hmm. There aren't a lot of good options, but I, I think American policy is basically to try and balance the demands of the region with the need to have a good relationship with China. You have the neighbors who basically wanted a vigorous American presence. They want to see American aircraft carrier. They want to see American missile defense systems in the region. But they also want America to have a good relationship with China, which is, of course, the most important trading and, and financial relationship America has. I think that America's policy falls into the category of so much American foreign policy, which is you can't fault it by saying there's a brilliant other policy they should have tried. But on the other hand, you can't say that what America's doing at the moment is working. Mm -hmm. We're kind of stuck. Uh, yeah. I think that's that's my sort of judgment. It, it, Barbara, would anything that the U.S. does actually work to change the situation there? I mean, any rational policy? It's difficult to see at this point. I mean, I think we've tried everything, <laughs> you know, short of attacking the place. So I think the onus is on China uh, and also on South Korea to some extent, and we'll follow their lead. Well, okay. And I think we belabor that issue sufficiently. <laughs> Let's see if we can belabor these new talks that are happening in Kazakhstan between the Iranian officials and the, what, P5 plus Germany. That's the permanent uh, five members of the United Nations Security Council. And, Barbara, the Atlantic Council, of which you're affiliated here in Washington, has issued a report that's entitled Time to Move from Tactics to Strategy on Iran. What does that mean? Well, first of all, let me say thank you, North Korea, for making Iran look rational by <laughs> comparison, apart from some uh, unpleasant remarks by Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, which he has not repeated lately, I must admit, about Israel. They haven't been threatening to uh, turn anybody into a sea of fire lately, uh, and uh, they've been relatively restrained. The talks, uh, the talks, um, judging from the latest reports from my colleague uh, Laura Rosen from Almaty, Kazakhstan, they have not gotten off to a terribly good start. Uh, why am I not surprised? These talks are not necessarily about a solution. They're about staving off a military strike and uh, keeping some sort of process going while we try to retool our strategy. And this report has a number of elements. Uh, a lot of very distinguished former U.S. officials uh, signed on to it, a former deputy treasury secretary, former CIA director, former joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, former uh, veteran diplomat. What it basically says is we have to try to build a relationship with the Iranian people even while this dispute goes on. And it makes suggestions for retooling the sanctions, designating a couple of banks in uh, Iran and in the U.S. where you can have authorized transactions for humanitarian purposes, things like trade in food and medicine, supporting students in this country, supporting other academic exchanges. It talks about asking the Iranians to put Americans in an interest section in Tehran to process visas for Iranians. It talks about increasing exchanges. Uh, one of the good news stories that hasn't been reported really until now is that uh, scientific exchanges and meetings are actually on the rise again. They 
went down after the disputed elections in 2009, but the American Academies of Science and others have been having meetings on issues like water quality, AIDS research, uh, earthquake prediction with Iranian scientists, American scientists, and so on. And we have a virtual embassy, U.S. embassy for Iran. There are suggestions in the report for augmenting this in various ways. And we have to understand that the nuclear question may or may not be resolved in the short term, even in the longer term, but that if we lose the goodwill of the Iranian people, which we are beginning to do because of sanctions, then we will have lost perhaps the most valuable asset for the United States. Um, at the event where we launched this report, and one can find it at acus.org, I quoted Mike Hayden, the former CIA director, as saying that the Iranians have been the most pro-American Muslims from Marrakesh to Bangladesh. And we don't want to lose that important asset uh, as time goes on, especially with all the rest of the turmoil in the Middle East right now. Well, David, what do you think? Well, I mean, I'm sure it's a very serious piece of work. And, and I, I must admit, I, I have a kind of sort of sceptical reaction to that, which is, I mean, if Iran were Burma, then this is a kind of beautiful strategy for coping with the fact that Iran has a hostile dictatorship that we find very difficult to deal with. And we, and we do, of course, need to reach out to the Iranian people. And there are young, educated people, certainly in Tehran and the other big cities, who are chafing under the restrictions imposed on them by the religious leadership of Iran. But they're trying to build a bomb. And if they get anywhere close to building a bomb, that's going to trigger a war between Israel, America's closest ally, and Iran. And it seems to me that it's very, very hard to kind of get around that separate problem because the Iranian people, the same Iranian students who deeply dislike the mullahs, who deeply dislike religious restrictions imposed on them, or the, you know, all of the sort of ghastly corruption and, and squalor of living in a dictatorship like that, a lot of them probably would also quite like to wake up and find that Iran was a nuclear power because they're also nationalists. I mean, the problem we face with the nuclear question with Iran is that it's quite clear that we're dealing with a government that if they could suddenly kind of do a magic trick, pull off the cloths and say, ta-da, here's our bomb, that's what they would like to do. And frankly, if you were the Iranian government, that's what you would want to do too because they look around uh, at uh, Muammar Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein and they figure these guys are in a ditch dead because they didn't have a bomb. So we need a bomb. And they look at North Korea. Well, we're tiptoeing around North Korea because North Korea's got a bomb. So it's rational for them to want one. And the game is the race between where they are now and that ta-da moment where they pull the cloth off and there's the bomb. And it seems to me that that's just because of the impacts on Israel, because of the security relationships in that region. I don't see how much room there is for all alternative strategies that, that aren't about that. I, I mean, I applaud the effort, yeah, well, but I wonder we, how you can have that alternative. Uh, uh, Barbara, hold on a minute, and we'll return to you uh, uh, just after I take a break here and remind listeners that this is Issues in the News coming to you on The Voice of America in Washington. I'm your moderator, Fred Barnes of The Weekly Standard. Joining me today are David Rennie of The Economist and Barbara Slavin of AlMonitor.com. And this is a reminder that you can listen to Issues in the News as a podcast online please visit our website, voanews.com, slash issues in the news, and click on podcast. Yeah. Well, Barbara? Well, the report isn't just about engaging the Iranian people. It's also about the nuclear question, and it sets out, I think, very reasonable parameters for a settlement that would satisfy the nationalistic pride of most Iranians. It says we have to recognize that can enrich uranium. They're already doing it. Uh, it should be capped at 5% of U-235, which is the ex explosive uh, isotope uh, that, of course, if you go up to 90%, it's weapons grade, so keep it at 5%. Has to be uh, verifiable. 
they have to explain past actions toward weaponization, and they have to also present a reasonable estimate of how much low-enriched uranium they need for civilian purposes. The Iranian leadership talks about acknowledging their right to enrich. Well, this would acknowledge their right to enrich, uh, and I think it would satisfy most Iranians who are really suffering from the sanctions. I was there last August. People are in a terrible state. This was the worst Persian New Year most Iranians have faced since the Iran-Iraq War. And the leadership is very, very well aware of the level of discontent. And I think if there were a face-saving exit, such as proposed in this report, that the Iranian leadership might take it. This has been a very slow crawl toward a bomb. They've shown extraordinary patience. Started back under the Shah more than half a century ago, and they have taken their time. They may not necessarily need to have a bomb. They may be able to be quite satisfied with a kind of virtual uh, nuclear weapons capability, which the world could live with, might not be happy about, but not actually go as far as, as North Korea has in terms of building and testing a weapon. I don't know. It's hard for me to believe they'd be happy with a virtual bomb. It wouldn't have the same impact you talked about North Korea. Why do we deal with them so gingerly? It's because they're a nuclear power. You've got to assume, and I, I, I bounded Barbara's knowledge of, I mean, I've not been to Iran for, for many years, but I mean, for example, we now have these presidential elections in Iran in June. Should we see those as a useful barometer of Iranian opinion? I mean, in terms of these awful sanctions, which clearly are causing you know, tremendous hardship on a day-to-day basis, can we say, you know, we will now know from these presidential elections who they blame? Do they blame us, the outside world, the West, or will they think that it's the, the fault of their mullahs for trying to get a bomb? Can we read anything like that into these elections, or is, is it going to be a purely domestic election? I'm not, I'm not sure we'll be able to. I, I don't know how important the nuclear question will be in these elections. A lot depends on the candidates that are allowed to run, and right now it doesn't look terribly promising. I mean, the clerics control everything, and they'll control who gets to run, and most likely it's going to be uh, an election between Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Uh, We may not even see the kinds of televised debates that they had in 2009, which were quite fascinating, actually, in terms of giving a sense of of, uh, feelings about these issues. But I think the turnout will be very interesting. If it's low, uh, it'll be a reflection of Iranian alienation, disaffection from the system, which is partly caused by the way the government has managed or mismanaged this nuclear question. But this is a giant question, who they blame for the sanctions. Mm-hmm. Does your report go into, go into that? I mean, I mean, the sanctions in part must be about trying to get the Iranian people to turn against their own government and yeah, decide the bomb a, is too high a cost. You know, again, this is, this is all anecdotal. There, there are polls uh, which show the Iranians blaming the United States. I mean, I spent time with people that I have known for years who in the past were very pro-American and who were quite candid with me. And uh, even just the sense that, you know, when you announce you're an American and you're in a a shop in Tehran, it's no longer, oh, you know, we love you. It's now, Mm. oh, you. Uh, I mean, one can feel it. And it's it's a very distressing uh, emotion to experience if for somebody. I've been going there for 15, 16 years now, so it was kind of sad to see. Okay, we have two more issues to go, which we're going to have to do uh, very quickly here. The first one is, uh, David, uh, Secretary of State Kerry's trip to, uh, when he's going to Jerusalem anyway, to the Middle East and to uh, see what he can do about reviving any Israeli-Palestinian talks. Uh, One question that uh, that comes to my mind is, with all the other things going on in the world that are so important, why why bother with that since the the prospects are are so meager? Well... Before Secretary of State Kerry uh, took up office, the people around him, uh, when they were asked, you know, how much 
you know, slack is he going to be given by President Obama to pursue his own agenda? One of the key questions, one of the key points of difference was clearly that the White House was much, much more sceptical about the prospects for a big comprehensive revival of peace talks. Mm -hmm. And the word from kind of Team Kerry was, you know, he's keen to see what the chances are. He wants to kind of take soundings. He wants to really sort of satisfy his own kind of sense of you go to the very, very last mile of kind of patient diplomacy and endless talks and talks. And, and then he would come back and report to the president whether there were kind of prospects for reviving this. And so I think, you know, well, the president was just there himself. Well, yeah, but the, the, the you know, the, the traditional method is that the, the president has to be available, the president has to be the kind of final arbiter and, and the final things will always be worked out at that level. But the Secretary of State does this kind of sandings and sees what the chances are. I think that, as far as I can tell, the White House still thinks, to put it crudely, that you can't want peace more than they do. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that the prospects are pretty dim. But um, this is a pretty fly visit. He's on his way to Asia. Uh, he's True. But, you know, he has been described to me by someone close to him as someone who, who will, he always, always wants to exhaust every last possibility of, of diplomacy and, and to go to the very last mile. So I suspect that fits into that. Well, I guess it does. Uh, Barbara, do you want to add something to that? We also have to get to President Obama and gun control oh, in a moment, but yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. No, I think we, we predicted actually before Secretary Kerry took over that he would be more hands-on on this issue than Hillary Clinton had mm -hmm. been. Uh, and, and indeed, this is a shuttle without calling it a shuttle. Uh, and nobody expects a peace plan, maybe not even formal talks, but, you know, there can be some gestures. The Israelis can let go some political prisoners, uh, which has been a big issue for the Palestinians. There can be other things that can be done to improve the quality of life for uh, the Palestinians. There have been some demonstrations recently uh, over the killings of, you know, Palestinians and, and the prisoners, and we don't, you know, you don't want to see another intifada, a third intifada breaking out. So... By going, he may be able to forestall that and uh, and at least keep keep the place quiet for a while. Gun control, President Obama, David. Uh, I give the president some credit. I mean, this uh, he's uh, already given a speech in Denver. He's going to give several others going to the Northeast to talk about gun control. Just at the time that in Congress, the prospects of any significant gun control legislation have have really faded. I don't think there are many people who expect that the president will be able to revive them, at least a, uh, a, a significant piece of legislation. But there he is out there, and uh, uh, and it is, I would say, uh, politically somewhat risky, because if he doesn't uh, uh, produce a stronger bill than what appears to pass, if anything passes, uh, no doubt the press will criticize him for that. Well, unless you take a more cynical view, which is, I mean, not even cynical. I mean, the sense in Congress is that this is dead. Nothing's going to happen. I mean, really, almost even the things that we thought were easy, sure. you know, some federal legislation making it uh, more dangerous to, to sell a gun to a criminal who's not allowed to own a gun, you know, what they call the trafficking legislation, even that may not get through now. I mean, really, the level of ambition is, is, is close to zero. Perhaps when we see President Obama flanked by policemen in Colorado, the state where we've had some gun massacres, uh, saying he wants this to happen, we're now in the process of assigning blame for failure as opposed mm. to a president lobbying mm. for success. Uh, and I think we've seen that basically, uh, although, as the president never sort of uh, tires of saying, 90% of the American public tell opinion polls they'd like to see tougher background checks. This, isn't, this is a classic example where a very, very passionate minority uh, is going to win this argument. The uh, Barbara? 
Well, you know, the action has has moved to the states very much. We've seen very good legislation that's been passed now in New York, Colorado, Connecticut, and Maryland. The uh, legislature there has just passed some very, very tough new gun laws. I think there are seven states plus the District of Columbia that ban new new sales of uh, military assault-type weapons. So, you know, the tragedy of of Newtown is not, not completely for naught, I think, because of that. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but Congress is coming back and... And I think there is still going to be some sort of debate on the floor of the Senate. I believe um, so. And it's possible that some of the things that were knocked off the legislation might be re-added in the form of amendments. And maybe they can at least come through with something like man- mandating background checks for people who mm-hmm. buy guns, even though it's not quite, certainly nowhere close to what one would have hoped for earlier. Uh, it, 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 there will be some effort, I think. Well, one of the problems for uh, gun control is that even some Democrats um, who would be needed to pass legislation aren't for it. That's right. And and one of the most sort of, there's been some extraordinary sort of stories in the papers recently uh, confirming what we sort of knew, but really giving us numbers, that one of the problems with this is that large parts of America just are not affected by gun murders. This is, you know, tragically an unbelievably racially divided and economically divided story. There are cities, particularly with African Americans, where you have extraordinarily high levels of gun murders, but there are lots and lots of states with Republican congressmen and senators, you know, states like Wyoming and Montana, where there, where there, where there are no gun murders. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thank you, David. That's all the time we have. Uh, joining us today were Barbara Slavin, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and Washington Correspondent for Almonitor.com. And David Rennie, Lexington columnist for The Economist. This program was produced by Anya Zalewski. Our engineer was David Boddington. I'm Fred Barnes of The Weekly Standard. Thanks for listening. From Washington, the nation's capital, the Voice of America has brought you Issues in the News. You can email your questions or comments to our panelists. Send them to voanews at voanews.com. And to keep up with all the latest news, tune in The Voice of America on radio, television, or the World Wide Web. Join us next week at this time for Issues in the News.